life at the bar that one spends a, a very substantial proportion of it uh, defending uh, fairly hopeless cases. I set, I set my book up against any crime thriller because these things really happen. Criminal cases were being deliberately adjourned. Court sittings were being deliberately cancelled. Courtrooms were being deliberately left empty to save comparatively small amounts of money. The thing that stays with me from that trial, my recollection of seeing Shipman almost smirking, I think, when he received those verdicts. Is that your recall and, and how did you feel about that? Uh, over the years, I, I've um, made a point of, of never looking at uh, defendants when the verdicts return. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on another Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And before we tell you about our guest today, I think we need to do another shout out to places where we didn't think we'd be listened. <laughs> where now? Where, where can we not go in the world still, well, but we can I'm get gonna, to people through their I'm ears? Gonna tell you, I'm going to tell you that uh, we gave a shout out last time to, do you remember where? Singapore. That's right, yeah. Well, our listenership has gone up since the shout-out there. Mm. We've now got 13 listeners in Singapore. And so today we're going to give a shout-out to the United Arab Emirates, where we currently have nine listeners. Oh, hi. So if you're listening in the UAE, hi. And uh, when it's safe to fly, again, if you'd like to host us around at yours. No, I've heard no. it's very nice at the UAE. <laughs> Weather's always good. No, nah. no. Nah. Um, so yeah that's our shout out to place of the week uh, also a reminder if you want to get in touch with us it's bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com and you can drop us an email and also there. do uh, rate and review our podcast we like that very much and so do the lovely people at Apple <laughs> um, <laughs> that's true you say it? it's essential really to get other people to listen to this podcast so that would be great yes, if you've... Uh, right so today then oh do you want to say something else on that oh, I was going to say is if you've heard it even if you just write this podcast is ace right that will help us get up the chart. That's how it works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We think. Um, so today it is a nonfiction book we are looking at in detail, which I've got to say was there were some bits of this book that I was not looking forward to reading, not because of any other prejudice than I knew they were going to be quite upsetting. And they were in places, but I'm really glad I read it, actually. So the book is From Crime to Crime, Harold Shipman to Operation Midland, 17 Cases That Shocked the World, and it's written by Sir Richard Enriquez, who, in his time as a barrister, first of all, defended and prosecuted 106 murder trials in pretty much equal measure on the defence and prosecution side, and was then also a judge and a High Court judge and a judge at the Court of Appeal. And if I tell you that he had direct involvement in the Shipman trial, the James Bulger trial. He was tasked with investigating the botched Operation Midland. He tried the case of the Met Police for shooting dead Jean-Charles de Menezes. There are so many cases you will know in this book. And so this is us chatting to Sir Richard Enriquez. I think, I think I'm right in saying, is this a debut into writing for you? 
into writing books, yes. But yeah. uh, of course, I wrote a, a, a very substantial report over 500 pages into Operation Midland. And of course, throughout my career, I, I was writing uh, opening addresses to juries, closing speeches. And as a judge, I wrote a very large number of judgments. So in terms of writing, I'm fairly experienced in terms of writing books. I'm an absolute novice. How did writing books differ to writing those addresses you just mentioned? I found it remarkably similar, particularly similar to, to writing the review into Operation Midland. I think uh, that really created the background. I became used to spending uh, hours on the laptop and it was uh, fairly uh, a fairly short move from uh, writing uh, that review to writing this book. And um, I wanted to comment, Richard, when I first started reading your book, I think, I'm sure as everyone finds when they tuck into to something new, that you kind of have to get used to the style of writing. And what struck me initially about your writing style, if you like, is how pragmatic and logical your prose is, which of course I think is understandable given your career. Um, but was it an emotional experience would you say for you to look back and revisit all of these cases in such depth? Or do you, have you always viewed them in a more practical sense, remembering the job at hand? Uh, style, first of all, of course, I, I was used to addressing juries uh, and that necessitated uh, a comparatively straightforward, non-flamboyant, pragmatic, uh, probably rather simple style. Uh, in terms of uh, emotional involvement, uh, I, I tended to write when the weather was bad, when I couldn't garden or golf, and I, I'd write part of a chapter a few pages at a time, uh, and I found that was rather unemotional. When I came to read the whole book as part of the proofreading, uh, I did find that um, certainly in relation to some of the cases, very emotional indeed. Uh, mm. The chapter, the, the, the James Bulger uh, murder is particularly emotional. Uh, Dr. Shipman, of course, to some considerable extent. I found the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes, the concept of an absolutely innocent man going to work in a foreign country, being gunned down in a tube train, uh, almost uh, terrifying. Mm. The alleged murder of Charlene Downs, a, a, a young girl in a, in a seaside resort, grossly abused uh, by, uh, by waiters before uh, uh, allegedly being murdered, uh, and no satisfactory outcome to the case. Yet, yes, taking the book as a whole, uh, it, it was an emotional experience reading it, and I'm sure to any reader it would be a very emotional experience. Yeah, I mean, it, yes. I think... Yeah, anything where you kind of, you know, you know that the chapter is going to be about the murder of James Bulger. I've got to admit, it's not something I was particularly relishing reading that section again. I was fascinated to, to hear more about some of the insights that I'd either forgotten or I don't think necessarily came out at the time in the press. But yeah, it's, it's still horrific, I think, to read. And, and I can't even imagine what it must have been like obviously to live through that and to be so closely involved as you were at that time. Cause you, you had, your son was, was a similar age to James Baldry, is that right? Just a few months, uh, a few months older than the two defendants. Mm. Uh, and uh, that I was very much prepared for the, 
prospect of having to cross-examine the two of them, uh, it became obvious towards the end of the prosecution case that they weren't going to give evidence. But uh, having to cross-examine children of that age was going to present a very substantial difficulty. But of course, conversing on a daily basis with a child of uh, almost identical age, uh, I, I realized was, was going to be a considerable advantage. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile, obviously that moment, and we can talk about that case in more detail as the interview progresses, Richard, but uh, lots of, it struck me reading this, a lot of your time is spent encountering the worst side of humanity. And yet in your personal life, you have clearly the best side of humanity. How do you reconcile both? I think an advantage that uh, barristers have who practice outside London is that one spends, uh, certainly I spend more or less half my life prosecuting, the other half defending. And that uh, created a, a balance, a, a balance between good and evil, uh, a balance between prosecuting and defending. Uh, and I think that ability uh, allowed one to, to have a, a much clearer perspective on life. I, I think defending all the time can give uh, a rather a, a warped attitude to life. Um, prosecuting all the time as well, I don't think it's a terribly healthy pursuit. And so I think I was greatly assisted by prosecuting and defending in equal measure. And I think the book, uh, just looking at the chapters, uh, the, the chapters when I was Queen's Counsel, I think they're almost equally divided between cases in which I defended and cases in which I prosecuted. And I know I won't be the first to ask you this, but um, because I know it's the one question I imagine every barrister gets, but and you probably know what's coming now. I can see you smiling. Smile on my face. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the obvious question is how... Do you agree to defend somebody if you're not absolutely certain of their innocence? But I know that there is a firmly held belief that goes all the way back to the Magna Carta about everyone being entitled to a legal defense. I would imagine that's probably your answer, but there must have been times when you were defending absolute wrong-uns and you were questioning your existence. It's part of life at the bar that one spends a, a very substantial proportion of it uh, defending uh, fairly hopeless cases. One skill that all young barristers uh, ought to uh, uh, ought to achieve is the ability to persuade those uh, against whom there is overwhelming evidence to appreciate the strength of the case against them, uh, and when it truly is hopeless, that they should plead guilty. Uh, a, 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 a large number of uh, of uh, advocates spend their time defending hopeless cases. Uh, and uh, it neither assists the um, defendant uh, nor the courts. But more than once, I began cases thinking they were hopeless, uh, and some way through the case, uh, it, it suddenly uh, appeared that, in fact, I was defending uh, an innocent person. Let me say this. Much more demanding uh, is the task of defending someone that uh, one actually believes is uh, innocent. Uh, th those are the cases uh, in respect of which one, one loses uh, sleep at night, particularly persons of uh, unblemished uh, character who've been unfairly uh, accused of crime. 
Yeah. Of course, I saw that at very close quarters in Operation Midland. Mm. Some uh, outstanding individuals were being accused of the most shocking and dreadful crimes. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, I think, to get into in your book. This seems like the right moment to pause briefly and have you read a short section for us, if that's okay. Pleasure, Natalie. I, I will do just that. I'll read, if I may, the first two paragraphs, which uh, I hope sets out uh, what I was seeking to achieve. This is not a memoir. It is not about me, but about the criminal cases I have been involved in, either as counsel or judge, and the lessons I have learned from them. Our entire criminal justice process is in crisis and the subject of much justified public criticism. Years of underfunding, ignoring reviews, and ministerial incompetence have driven me to write this book. The system is struggling to face the demands placed upon it. My intention is to demonstrate how the justice process has worked through the prism of cases with which I have been closely associated. I chose the title because each case concerns a crime of varying magnitude and long-term significance. They will show, I hope, how these diverse crimes have been prosecuted, defended, and judged at different times in the past 40 years. It is quite the career. Um, and as you say, it's a, it's a very emotional read, I think, when you see in this book all the cases you've, you've had a hand in. Um, I think probably, shall we start going a bit further in depth into the case of James Bulger? Because it's just such an emotive uh, trial, I think, still for so many people, obviously. Um, the, the thing that struck me about that case was there was a line in your book that said, um, uh, with relation to the James Bulger case, the sentencing guidelines for murder have assisted judges to a considerable degree, protecting them from over-emotional responses and providing a degree of consistency. I guess I'm still intrigued by how you can keep emotions in check in such an, such an extreme case, I suppose, of, of this one where obviously a toddler was, was led away by other children and killed. Life at the bar it involves a progression from the simplest uh, cases, driving cases initially, progressing then to shoplifting cases, but those can be very emotional. Uh, de defending uh, an abused housewife who perhaps has uh, forgotten to pay for goods, uh, th those are demanding. One then progresses on to uh, assaults, those uh, to those involved, those are, the, those are serious. One progresses on to burglaries and then to robberies and rapes. Rape cases are necessarily very, very emotional at times uh, until eventually uh, one, what one is briefed in homicide and terrorism trials. But throughout, it is an, an emotional test and it may be that one becomes emotionally anaesthetized. I've never known leading counsel in a murder trial uh, burst into tears or, or lose control when shown the most dreadful photographs. Um, I'm quite sure though, and indeed one sees jurors who don't have that experience of life in the criminal court. 
courts. Uh, I've seen many jurors uh, completely overcome when shown photographs uh, in murder trials or indeed very bad uh, wounding cases. Uh, jurors can be really overcome. And so I think it's a progressive um, anesthetic uh, of shocking detail that uh, simply uh, blunts the emotional process. You give us your views on the age of criminal responsibility in relation to Bolger, which was obviously a key part of the trial discussion as to how the two defendants would be accommodated in court. And you go into then some of the reviews that have taken place since that trial. What is your view of the age of criminal responsibility in this country at the moment? Are you satisfied with where it is? I am satisfied. and I would defend it strongly. If it were to be lifted to 13 or 14, which is the view of many intelligent, responsible, good people, I believe it would expose that age group, 10-year-olds, 11, 12, 13, to the attention of criminal gangs. Uh, at, at the moment, they are protected because uh, that, that age group, if they're caught uh, carrying drugs or were still carrying firearms, uh, the, um, the, the law enforcement agencies can take the appropriate steps. Um, at the moment, the drug gangs need uh, to recruit uh, much younger children to carry out uh, their deeds within the law so far as the children are concerned. Uh, and it's much more difficult to recruit uh, seven, eight, nine-year-olds than it is to recruit uh, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. The younger the child, the more likely they are to tell their parents what is going on. The fact of the matter is uh, that uh, in order to prove guilt, the prosecution had to show that Thompson and Venables knew that what they were doing was seriously wrong. And the evidence was that even a five-year-old knew to throw stones, to kick and beat with uh, metal uh, implements uh, 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 a toddler, that even a five-year-old knew that it was seriously wrong. And of course they knew. Uh, and I had uh, absolutely um, no misgivings at all uh, about 10-year-olds being tried by a jury. Uh, had there been no criminal trial, there would, I believe, have been civil disorder. So strong were the feelings within the uh, Liverpool community that uh, what these children did was shockingly wrong. Yeah. And uh, any, no alternative method of dealing with the case has been proposed by those who argue for a higher age of criminal responsibility. Each was denying his guilt. The idea that uh, the matter could have been dealt with behind closed doors by three magistrates or, or some, other, some other way, uh, I think uh, doesn't stand up to careful analysis. Uh, they were properly tried by a jury, properly found guilty. Uh, educationalist and psychologist gave evidence that uh, they, the children of that age, knew that what they did was indeed very gravely wrong. And what's your feeling now about the huge amount of public money that has been spent on both Venables and Thompson to give them anonymity and new identities so that they get a shot at liberty which James Bolger can't have? 
I, I can see both sides uh, of, uh, of this all too well. I, I understand the feelings of the Bulger family. Uh, Venables and Thompson had every possible advantage, rather better than a, an expensive public school education. One-to-one -one tuition uh, looked after throughout their teenage years. Uh, released before they were old enough to go to an adult prison uh, and thereafter uh, given anonymity for life. Uh, that must be deeply, deeply upsetting. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I personally believe that uh, everyone convicted of crime must be given the opportunity of reforming of repenting uh, and uh, leopards can indeed change their spots. Uh, it, it's incumbent upon any civilized society to look after those who are uh, effectively imprisoned. Uh, and uh, I, I'm equally sure that uh, giving uh, the, the two of them anonymity for life, uh, a decision made by the president, the then president of the family division was essential. Uh, had they had their whereabouts been learnt, uh, I'm sorry to say that there are those uh, in Liverpool who are sworn uh, to, to take revenge. Uh, the evidence before the president of the family division was that they would not be safe if their identity was known. Uh, and accordingly, it, it uh, was only right and correct that they were given anonymity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think sort of going back to the my sort of initial opening as well, I guess, as you were saying, you've had training to remove some of the in, understandable and in, initial human emotional response that people still have to these cases and will continue to have, um, you know, without a sort of similar training to yourself, I suppose. Um, I guess just sort of one last point on this, which kind of feeds into a lot of your other cases as well, is how I'm aware that this is part of your job and both Phil and I, as journalists have both covered some horrific cases as well and and I, I know I was I was reading the news um for the BBC on Radio 1 on the day of the uh, July 7th bombings and I found that one's probably stayed with me the most in terms of I really I really found it difficult to not take that home with me <clears throat> at the end of the day because it was so so difficult uh, to be in that um how did you so did, are you able to sort of compartmentalize your life when you walk away from a courtroom and head home to your wife and family? Is that an easy transition for you? Natalie, you as a journalist will know that, uh, uh, that there's a close bond and always has been between the bar and those journalists who, who spend their life in the criminal courts. Regrettably, there are many less now than, than they used to be. Um, for some reason, editors seem to take the view that um, only in a small handful of cases do journalists need to attend. But <clears throat> historically, I think most journalists started lives in, their lives in the magistrate's court. Yeah. Um, when juries are, are in retirement, I spent a lot of time uh, actually talking to journalists many of whom I think are emotionally anaesthetized in exactly the same way that the bar are. You, you, you tend to have seen it all before. Um, 
some very few cases though are, are truly truly shocking and just occasionally i would detect amongst the the the, the, the hardest hearted and uh, long-serving uh, crime reporters uh just a little tiny bit of emotion but um <laughs> um some of these cases came into that category um some of the some of the families that uh, gave evidence in the shipment trial uh, made great demands uh, on the uh, emotions. Uh, listening to uh, defence counsel having to suggest that, uh, that that their deceased mother w was a drug addict mm. um, did, did uh, it, it was truly truly shocking to see the effect that was having upon bereaved families. Uh, the terrible events in the tube train uh, when Jean Charles was was gunned down. Even e even journalists um, were, were shocked by that. But there, there is, I think, the the two young to remember that Wigan Pen Club on the Strand, immediately opposite uh, the Royal Courts of Justice, the bar and and journalists spent a lot of time together. I think because emotionally we're 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 on the same page. Yeah, I think over the years much alcohol has been consumed as part of that anaesthetizing process as well. Um, so just, uh, just moving on to Shipman then, um, but the, the thing that kind of struck me initially on that was that the idea of motive, which I think is something that anybody who reads a lot of crime fiction or watches thrillers, there's, there's always got to be a motive, there's always something really driving the killer to do what he does in a variety of circumstances. But with Harold Shipman, there appeared to be no motive, as in that wasn't really a driving force throughout. And I thought it was fascinating that you, you wrote how um, it's a common misapprehension that motive is an ingredient to the crime of murder. Unhappily, many murders are without reason or motive. In others, the motive is known only to the killer. And, and you think you know what the motive was for, for Shipman, especially. Nicola Davis, who, who defended, um, uh, suggested that this was a form of amateur psychology on my part, where, when I purported to uh, advance a, a motive. Uh, looking back now uh, over the years, the fact of the matter must be that Shipman actually enjoyed killing people, mm -hmm. enjoyed the whole process. Uh, possibly not so much the actual act of killing, which was simple enough as simple injection, but the excitement uh, for him must have come through managing to fob off the families, keep control of the body, make sure that there was no second post-mortem, keep the ambulances and the uh, hospitals um, separate from the body. Uh, and uh, 215 was, uh, as you so rightly say, the figure that uh, Dame Janet Smith uh, arrived at at her, her inquiry as the certain number of deaths. But uh, she puts the figure at the likely number of deaths at, at over 400. Now, uh, that's a, a very large uh, number of killings to do, mm. unless there was some thrill, some enjoyment. Uh, and. Uh, I learned a lot about him, of course, during the case. 
he'd uh, very few uh, interesting pastimes apart from reading uh, thrillers, as he, as he uh, called them, cri crime uh, novels. Mm. And at one stage he said, um, from reading all the thrillers that I do, I would have me guilty on the evidence. Um, he, he had no leisure pursuits. He didn't, between morning surgery and evening surgery, have anything very much to do. He was a, a lone sole practitioner. He'd uh, nobody really to talk to. The fact of the matter is, as the timings demonstrate, between the morning surgery and the evening surgery, if he'd nothing better to do, uh, he'd go out and kill one of his patients. Shocking conclusion to reach, but yeah. uh, uh, and then enjoy the thrill of making sure that there was no post mortem she achieved on every single occasion. So I covered that trial, Richard, and um, I was in the overflow room. I didn't make it into oh, your courtroom. <laughs> and um, the thing that stays with me from that trial was firstly how diligent the jury were in considering each and every verdict on its own merit. And they took at least over a week is my recollection. I think it was the eighth day when they came back is my recollection of it. But also my recollection of seeing Shipman almost smirking, I think, when he received those verdicts. Is that your recall, and, and how did you feel about that? Uh, over the years, I, I've um, made a point of, of never looking at uh, defendants when the verdicts return. Defendants are, are invariably, of course, immediately um, behind counsel, so it would involve a, a very obvious um, turning of the head. And... Um, particularly if one was prosecuting and there was an acquittal. Uh, I take very little pleasure in seeing the yes. look on the defendant's face. But no, I didn't, I didn't uh, look at him. The jury w were painstaking in th their application to detail. Uh, it, in one sense, it did take uh, certainly, I think, seven working days. But then there were 15 murders and a forgery. And dealing with um, two murders a day <clears throat> with the amount of, of detail uh, and the real difficulty that um, tendency, possibility of mixing two murders up. Several of the jurors took copious notes uh, and um, I, I was pleased that they were looking at these cases individually and with great care. The, the, the fear amongst the prosecution team was that uh, they might acquit in a, a few cases simply to show that, uh, um, that, that, that there was um, a, a kindly element amongst the jury rather than simply a, a prosecution favoured element. But uh, frankly, when one did analyse each case with care, uh, there was very, very clear evidence of guilt. What uh, the jury didn't know was that we had selected these uh, 15 murders from a choice of over 100 uh, cases that were being investigated at the time. Mm. And the evidence in respect of each killing, as indeed um, the book demonstrates, was very clear indeed. Well, the other thing that the jury didn't know is that he had a previous conviction for illegally obtaining drugs and pethidine. And you write in your book, the Home Office could have prevented 
these many tragedies. Following Shipman's conviction for drugs offences under the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971, the Home Secretary had power under that act to make a direction prohibiting Shipman from having in his possession prescribing, administering or otherwise dealing with such controlled drugs as was specified in the direction. Regrettably, you write, the Home Office officials dealing with the case appear to have been influenced by the decision of the General Medical Council and thus failed to give any such direction. Uh, first of all, your reaction to that. And secondly, as I read all these cases in the book, and we'll touch on two of the bigger ones in a moment, they seem to be littered with bureaucratic failure. The failures, uh, I have little doubt that the Home Office were influenced by the General Medical Council. Um, and um, the General Medical Council's decision, I, I find to be uh, simply impossible to reconcile with common sense. This is the decision to reinstate him? The, 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 the decision to reinstate him, or, or rather uh, uh, not remove, his, remove him from the register. Mm -hmm. um, there was an element of dishonesty in almost every one of the offences that he was convicted of before the magistrates or, or asked to be taken into consideration. Uh, a doctor who is uh, abusing pethidine, I don't think any of us would um, choose to go to a doctor uh, with a background such as that. Uh, the, the decision was, um, so far as I'm concerned, um, highly, highly regrettable. Uh, it it um, simply failed to have regard to the interests of uh, future patients of Dr. Shipman. Uh, and um, a simple decision that nobody could possibly have quarreled with, removing his name from the register. Uh, back uh, in his youth, I think he was in his early 30s at the time, mm -hmm. that would have saved all these deaths. Uh, the um, no doubt the Home Office simply took the view, well, he'd been reinstated. They failed to make the necessary inquiries. Uh, and um, the, the, likewise, the Home Office should never have allowed him to have um, access and to prescribe dangerous drugs as they did. But these were both shocking failures that yeah. um, simply that they're put up with my criticism. Uh, and that's that because those responsible are long since gone. Yeah. And I mean, the, the lack of check and balance in many of these cases is, as you say, the, and the lack of common sense is, is remarkable. Um, just one last thing on Shipman I wanted to, to touch on was you were mentioning how you had this 15 cases um, that you were trying and selected from about 100 that were being investigated at the time. But obviously there were then hundreds more that came to be learned about as well. But how you select those cases and, and also you write movingly about the public anger that only this handful of cases could ever be tried in court to, to try and get a conviction with Harold Shipman and the sense of injustice from victims' families who wouldn't get their day in court, if you like. Um, and you, it was the decision was that every family was seen independently to explain why other cases had been chosen over theirs. Does that happen a lot? Well, this, th this was, of course, uh, unique. Um, mm. He's, he, he remains the largest ever serial killer, or the most prolific serial killer, I should say, uh, ever to be brought to justice uh, in this country. Uh, and um, ne ne never before has a, a selection process had to be undertaken of this order. Um, 
the, several of the families uh, understood when the police explained to them that those who simply would not, uh, could not uh, understand why there was to be no prosecution, they were indeed seen independently. But I'm pleased to say every single one of the 85 or more families mm. in the end understood, accepted the, the decision and were wholly supportive. The fear, of course, was that uh, we would read headlines either in local or national papers. Uh, my mother was murdered and nobody's doing anything uh, about it. Yeah. And uh, making it almost impossible for, for Shipman to have a fair trial. That was our major concern. I want to talk about Operation Midland, which you've mentioned a couple of times. Um, for the uninitiated, Operation Midland was set up to supposedly uncover a paedophile ring in Westminster, which never existed, and was the work and the fabrication of one single source of a person called Nick, who seemed to gain the trust of certain officers very quickly, and through his information, led to a number of high-profile public figures being investigated, not only for alleged crimes of paedophilia, but in some cases for murder, none of which happened. The crimes did not take place. You were asked by the Lord Chief Justice through Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, who was then Commissioner of the Met, to review this. You conducted a review, you write about it very eloquently in this book, and yet it strikes me that none of your recommendations have been acted upon. Now, I know there's a new Commissioner. Have you spoken to Cressida Dick, who you praise actually in the Jean-Charles de Menezes chapter? Have you spoken to her about why your recommendations have not been acted upon? Because in one case, you even think there's grounds for a prosecution. I've spoken to her at um, considerable length. Uh, I've visited uh, New Scotland Yard. Uh, I've spent uh, a morning uh, with the commissioner uh, and uh, there is no doubt that she is taking the uh, recommendations that I made uh, very seriously indeed. Uh, she has uh, appointed uh, deputy assistant commissioner to uh, chair the matter. The, the problem that um, she faces and that the Metropolitan Police faces that uh, they are only one of 43 uh, police forces. Uh, there are numerous, uh, I think they call them stakeholders, but uh, nu numerous um, various bodies that think that they should have an input into many of the recommenda recommendations that I made. The, the principal uh, recommendation it, 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 that I make it, is that uh, Criminal investigation should be conducted with an open mind from the outset. Uh, the, the, the tuition being given at the College of Policing at the time and adopted by the Metropolitan Police and blamed by the police officers responsible for Operation Midland is that complainants in sexual cases must be believed. Uh, that, I concluded, was uh, in error because if they must be believed, it follows instantly that those accused of crime must be disbelieved, and that turns the burden of proof on its head. Uh, in other words, they've got to prove their innocence because they are believed to be guilty. It seems to me a, a very reasonable proposition that uh, investigations into crime should be conducted with an open mind. The College of Policing uh, do not uh, accept that proposition. 
I spent uh, considerable time with uh, with them. They do not accept it, um, and um, there are so many different uh, <clears throat> bodies. I think over a dozen uh, that um, seek to have some sort of input. Uh, ultimately, I believe it, it's a matter for the government. But um, still, it's uh, well over three years. Uh, I handed my uh, report to Sir Bernadette Hogan Howe, as he then was, on the last day of October in 2016. And so we're three and a half years uh, into, uh, uh, into the aftermath. Uh, and so far as I know, uh, nothing has as yet been achieved. And just to explain to our listeners what the biggest failings were. The biggest failing was to believe uh, b believe everything that uh, Nick told the police uh, and um, not make sufficient or proper inquiries to, to uh, test what he'd said. Uh, he gave one version to the Metropolitan Police. If they had con contrasted what he'd uh, previously said to the Wiltshire Police, it would have been immediately obvious that uh, he was telling lies to the Metropolitan Police. That task was, ne was not carried out uh, sufficiently or apparently at all. It took six months, I should say, to go and interview uh, Nick's mother. Uh, her, her evidence uh, made it completely impossible to accept what, what her son said. Uh, put in simple terms, he alleged he was collected from primary school in the early evening uh, driven to central London, uh, anally raped numerous times, uh, brought back late at night to uh, distance many, many miles from central London, uh, either Wiltshire uh, or Oxfordshire, uh, latterly Surrey, but uh, never, they were mother and son living together with uh, no others. Um, mother said she no question of any injury being obvious to her, never absent from home so far as she knew. The school knew nothing about him being abducted, taken away from school in, in black cars with chauffeurs. He gave completely different descriptions of those who'd abused him to the two different police forces, but most significant of all, I think, he told the Wiltshire police that uh, he, he had been raped in the Hilton Hotel on Park Lane and in a hotel just off Oxford Street. Uh, he told the Metropolitan Police that he had uh, been uh, abused in the Carlton Club, uh, the conservative HQ, of course, uh, and uh, he'd also been uh, uh, abused in Dolphin Square, an apartment block in Westminster, close to the Houses of Common, Commons. Now, the two versions just uh, didn't stand together. They were both there to be read, uh, I read them within days of receiving the papers, and it, uh, it, it's, it's, you have read this uh, clearly in the book, that the two versions don't stand together, and quite uh, how, over some 14 months or more, uh, a whole squad of police officers, uh, five senior officers, and up to 20 uh, detective constables, all purported to believe Nick, uh, just beggars belief. You also talk as well about how there's been such underfunding of the judicial system and, you know, arguably police forces around the country as well. How, how bad is it? And do you think that it can be 
solved or fixed, I suppose, in, in any type of short term length of time? Or are we talking decades to, to fix something that's quite broken? The underfunding <coughs> has uh, really come home to roost <coughs> by the, with, with this pandemic. There was already a, a very substantial backlog of criminal cases, a, a backlog that ought never to have occurred. Uh, in order to save money, criminal cases were being deliberately adjourned, court sittings were being deliberately cancelled, courtrooms were being deliberately left uh, empty to save comparatively small uh, amounts of money. That resulted in a very substantial backlog of cases. I completed my book before the pandemic was even dreamt of in I think uh, late December uh, of last year. Cases, the worst cases, with the worst courts were taking 750 days to hear cases. Many courts were taking 500 days. But since the pandemic, no criminal courts have been sitting until I think two weeks ago. There are now four courts only sitting in England and Wales, one court only in the whole of the north of England in Manchester, no courts sitting in the northeast, no criminal courts, uh, criminal crown courts, I should say, sitting uh, in the northeast. Uh, and we're now told by the police, uh, and I'm sure this is right, that some cases are going to take five years to be heard. Well, that is a criminal justice system that is simply broken. Uh, the only courts that are sitting are requiring three courtrooms, one courtroom for the defendant, the judge and the advocates, a second courtroom for uh, the, the um, press, for relatives, for the public to, to, to sit and watch, and a third courtroom for jurors to retire to. Uh, that means under present arrangements, there's no hope uh, of beginning to erode this backlog, it is increasing every day at pace. Mm. And uh, if we are faced with increasing unemployment, which seems absolutely unavoidable, crime and unemployment go hand in hand. Uh, and we, we've reached the stage where I believe there is a, a national emergency that uh, journalists need uh, to tackle immediately. Unfortunately and understandably, the criminal justice process has been, uh, has uh, come in our consideration after the National Health Service, after the economy, and after education. That puts it in fourth position. But it needs very, very immediate attention. Uh, I'm yet to hear of any solution emanating from government which begins to solve the problem. Any form of social distancing renders jury participation extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, judge alone is a solution that has been advanced. It's been rejected by the government on ideological reasons. Uh, but um, for my part, I think some uh, amendment to possibly judge alone, a judge sitting uh, with uh, two magistrates or a judge sitting with a, a limited number of jurors, six or seven, um, will have to be adopted. We simply cannot allow this backlog to continue to remain and to be increased. 
So you're advocating that despite trial by jury by our peers to be one of the basic tenets of the Magna Carta. I'm really surprised to hear you say that. I, I do this. I, I advocate this purely as an emergency measure. This is no time for ideology or orthodoxy. This is an absolute crisis. Northern Ireland, governed by Parliament in Westminster, faced a similar crisis in the Troubles. Juries could not be impaneled that were not biased in one direction or another. And between the Troubled Times and 2000. At 2000, I think, and seven, uh, judge alone trials took place in Northern Ireland well, successfully with uh, approbation uh, from journalists and from commentators. Uh, judge alone trials take place in several American states, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, in all those cases with the consent of defendants, but they are becoming increasingly popular. Uh, members of ethnic minorities are, are having trust in, in judge, more trust in judge alone than in jurors, whom they b believe may well be uh, uh, opposed to them uh, on, uh, on, on racial grounds. But uh, I don't advocate this uh, as the way forward in, in, in happier times. This is a dire emergency. And if uh, somebody can, can come up with a method of not only restarting uh, our jury system, but uh, eroding this wholly unacceptable um, I go along with it. Mm. If uh, somebody could show that virtual trials could be fair to defendants and could work without uh, regular breakdowns in the system, but the virtual trial process needs jurors to assemble and to get together and to meet. And to have 12 jurors in different locations, all uh, uh, on their own, safe, not being uh, accompanied by other people, jury integrity is absolutely vital. For my part, I cannot see how it can occur. The government have now had 13 weeks to come up with a solution. They are no nearer a solution now than they were 13 weeks ago. Uh, and some solution has got to be found. The backlog goes up every day. Crime... Let's say that they accept your solution though, Sir Richard. How do you then prevent what I would call mission creep? What happens when the virus has been dealt with and the government say, well, we don't need to go back to trial by jury and actually we're saving a boatload of cash by not doing it? Well, Phil, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. That is the argument of the majority of the criminal bar. They fear it because the game would be substantially over for the criminal bar were that to happen. Trials would take much less time because it wouldn't need uh, a long opening. The judge alone would say, I've read the papers, call your evidence. It wouldn't need uh, half an hour, 40, 50 minutes. You journalists will have listened to the burden of proof often enough. My estimation is, and I've asked Canadian judges about this, trials take just about half the time uh, with the judge alone. And of course, many would uh, plead guilty, uh, realizing that a judge alone was, was less likely to be uh, misled than, than a, a jury. Uh, and um, so yes, the criminal bar fear that once started, it would never stop. 
uh, I, I think that's a misguided view. I think that uh, the jury system is regarded as an absolute cornerstone of our criminal justice system. I think that those who, for very, very short-term reasons, uh, want to see criminal trials restarting, I think it's vital. I think we, we are possibly days away from disorder within our jails and civil disorder. At the moment, fraudsters can commit crime, shocking as it may seem, with little prospect of being tried in the foreseeable future. There's um, a case I've been made aware of by the judge who's been assigned to try it. Seven defendants with uh, interpreters. Uh, the, the prospect of being able to get seven defendants, their legal advisors, the interpreters, uh, and the jury together in any courtroom in this country, it is just just impossible. Mm. Uh, and nobody has any idea when this case is going to be heard. Some of the defendants are, are extremely dangerous individuals. Uh, and there are many who are being held in custody, some of whom must be innocent, who have no prospect at all or no idea when their cases are going to be tried. This really is a national emergency that is not receiving the attention it merits. I have to say I have conflicted feelings about this I think because I've I've been a juror I've sat on a jury about 15 years ago I did not enjoy the experience um it was two weeks where I only had two days in court and then the case collapsed but it was from my perspective it was terrifying uh in some of the opinions in that room and just the lack of understanding of how a trial worked in that you know you'd hear the prosecution and then people will be like well they're guilty <laughs> and then you're like but you haven't heard the defense yet so you can't say that um yeah anyway i it's it's such a thorny subject but i from what you're saying as well it sounds like is this the most terrifying time to be for a case of my mistaken identity you know for somebody innocently to be arrested and then get caught in a horrendous system Natalie, the number of times I have been confronted by those who served on jurors uh, <laughs> at parties, uh, Phil mentioned the question one's most often asked is how can you defend uh, guilty uh, defendants. Um, I have been told so often by those who served on jurors that uh, the experience really was a shocking experience. It was, yeah. Uh, and that uh, a number of the jurors simply did not take on board the facts of the case and, no. uh, and reach their decision for uh, on a wholly erroneous basis. Uh, what one great problem we have is that uh, the, the Contempt of Court Act makes it impossible to interview jurors and so studies of jurors just cannot take place uh, effectively in our country. I guess my last question on, on this um, would just be so obviously the government haven't put forward any guidelines or any solutions to this backlog in cases that still need to be tried. Is there, do you think there is 
space for people like yourself and your peers who I'm, I'm assuming you haven't been asked your opinion in an official capacity to put forward any solution to this. Is that something you'd be willing to do or to gather together, you know, some like-minded experienced professionals who've spent a lifetime um, working within the British legal system to, to see if you can find a solution independently. Is that something you'd have the, um, the passion to do, I suppose? I'd be delighted to give, to give any help if anybody was prepared to listen to me. The Lord Chief Justice uh, has assembled together uh, a team in which um, all the stakeholders uh, are represented. The number of people that have to be consulted, uh, of course, uh, the bar, uh, solicitors, the prison service, the probation service, court staff, um, judges, uh, everyone is being consulted. But so far as I know, nobody is coming up with a solution. My own solution would be this. I think it's po possibly the only one that uh, would uh, gain any support at the moment is that for the most serious cases, a judge and six or seven jurors uh, for the cases which could have been tried in the magistrate's court, these are what's called either way uh, offences, the less serious jury trials, they should be tried by a, a judge sitting with two magistrates. Both those uh, systems will be criticised. I don't believe that uh, there's any more satisfactory solution in the present emergency uh, and I would pass a law requiring full jury trials to be uh, restarted just as soon as this pandemic is over and as soon as the backlog is reduced to manageable proportions. A solution has to be found immediately. Mm. Talking about converting buildings, rebuildings, opening old buildings, if somebody had got hold of this uh, 13 weeks ago, uh, that might have been a possibility. It no longer is. This backlog is just too great. Oof. There are so many, um, so many cases that you cover in this book, and obviously we haven't got all day, as much as we'd love all day with you. I know you've been <laughs> to do, but you also at the end of this oh, book make so worry. I'm golfing tomorrow, not today. Oh, fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you make some recommendations at the end of the book, and again, people can discover them for themselves. And we've touched yeah. largely on the, the backlog issue just there. The one that stood out for me, though, because it comes up when you address the appeal of Barry George for the murder of Jill Dando, mm. is the abolition in 2012, I think it was, of the Forensic Science Service, which seemed to baffle you. And then I seem to infer from the pros that you think it might be on its way back, but you don't know when. Is it, well, What's the situation with the Forensic Science Service? I wish I knew, Phil. You, you're, you've got better way, ways of finding out than I have, but I don't believe that the Forensic Science Service is yet to, uh, back to what it was, although various noises have been made about bringing it back. Um, I regarded it as absolutely essential, and I was, as indeed were, were many, many professionals, staggered uh, at the abolition of this. The very, very large police forces might have been able to cope, but um, small police forces that have a handful of murders uh, every year, a, a, a national service that had uh, top experts in every scientific field was absolutely essential. It worked well, the scientists were of, uh, were of uh, high order, 
I was never able to comprehend why it, it, uh, it, it was abolished. Um, the, the whole of the criminal justice process that uh, 20 years ago was regarded as world leading in every respect has been eroded. And this is one of the major erosions that the Jill Dando trial turned almost entirely on scientific evidence. It certainly persuaded the Court of Appeal of which I was a member that firearms residue and inside pocket of an overcoat was relevant and significant evidence. Um, it, it turned out that um, uh, the, the, the scientists changed, changed their mind, that uh, it no longer was significant evidence, and the jury that in due course acquitted Barry George was not indeed told uh, about any firearms residue that was uh, allegedly in the inside pocket of an overcoat. Uh, I refer to that evidence because it just puts the finger upon the importance of scientific evidence and the criminal justice process. Every single police force should have access to the same levels of expertise. It shouldn't be a matter of uh, having to pay for different scientists here or there. Uh, sometimes within a very short period of time, it's absolutely vital to receive uh, DNA uh, um, analysis, blood analysis, fingerprint analysis, facial recognition. All these were available to the Forensic Science Service, any police force, anywhere, within minutes could, could consult them. Now, smaller police forces may come across a scientific difficulty that they've never encountered before, uh, and uh, they've got to somehow or other uh, find an expert uh, who's uh, qualified. Uh, the, it, it's, it, it's wholly unsatisfactory. I haven't met a professional that's yet thought it a good idea. Uh, it appealed to those um, who had to pay for the forensic science service. Of course it costs money, but some things have to exist in a criminal justice system that works. The kind of last point I want to make is we, right at the start of this series, um, where we've been chatting to authors, is we spoke to Linda LaPlante, and she was talking about how even in the research that she does for her books and you know she's a fiction author she's obviously not a, a QC or a judge um, but how it was evident to her that there's such an imbalance towards victims of crime um, and just listening to you chat today as well and you know hearing about delays of you know at least a year and a half until your case is going to come to court uh, longer just what that must be like for for families um, who are at the heart of, of all of this and, and who supposedly the, the judiciary is supposed to help. It, it, like you say, it just all seems such a mess. A, a year and a half, if I may say so, Natalie, a, a, a year and a half would be a remarkably speedy criminal trial with the, with yeah. the present uh, process. Um, and it is simply, simply unacceptable. We've got to do so much better. The, the, the waiting is one thing. Um, victims of, of rape need to be able to, to, to put it behind them and forget about them. And the trial process means reliving it all again. Mm. But so much of the criminal trial process depends on the ability to remember. 
-hmm. And as time goes by, we forget, we forget detail. Identification cases, the, the memories of people that one met 18 months, two years ago, uh, that the, 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 they fade, memories yeah. of events. Um, we, we, we had a burst pipe two years ago. Neither my wife nor I could remember who we got to repair it. Um, <laughs> okay, we're getting on. But memories, yeah. memories do, do simply fade. And so many cases turn on matters of detail. Alibis turn on matters of detail. A false alibi. What were you watching on the television that night? What yeah. happened? Who, well, you, you cannot remember events. Uh, when, I, when I was practicing at the bar, um, I was circuit leader. I then became, uh, when I went onto the bench, um, within 12 months, I was presiding judge on the Northeastern Circuit. We tried to dispose of all criminal trials within 12 months. Mm -hmm. It was a special list of anything over 12 months. Uh, and there'd be a, a, a detailed inquiry into what had gone wrong. Why had it not been heard? Sometimes, of course, the defendant had absconded. That was a pretty good explanation. <laughs> but uh, um, sometimes a, a file had been lost. Uh, and we, we then found out why the case hadn't come on for hearing. Uh, and the idea now that some courts are talking in terms of 500 or 750 days, and that was before this pandemic. Mm. Uh, I just, I, I'm just now a, a, an ordinary citizen, and I just do not want uh, civil disorder and riots in our jails. Um, it, it's, we, we've got to solve this and get on with it. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, I think um, our time is just about up with you. It's been such a fascinating hour to spend in your company. Um, I am I could pick your brain for much longer, but we will leave you to go about your business. Um, are there books that you enjoy reading for pleasure, fiction or non-fiction that you could recommend to us? Strangely enough, I, I in common with many, many uh, criminal lawyers, read very, very little fiction, simply because two things. One, after a day when one's done nothing but read from uh, and pretty speedy reading as well. Mm. The actual physical process on the eyes and on the brain, I think. <laughs> the last thing, the last thing that one wants, wants to do at the end of an evening, and particularly in bed, is actually to continue the process that, uh, that, that one's been involved in um, uh, throughout, uh, throughout the day. I also, but, I suppose on that point as well, if you, I don't know if you've ever read many crime thrillers but do you find your brain because it's such an analytical brain anyway is always just looking for the clues from the get-go so it's not that enjoyable because you're just trying to find any loopholes in there absolutely and the, the, and I, I set i set my book up against any crime thriller because these things really happen mm. and you know the, the idea of um of truth being stranger than fiction or, or, or whatever. I mean, it, it, anybody can, can dream up or, or, or think up a case. I, I read um, biographies. I'm just looking at, uh, at over there at, at a bookshelf and I can see uh, Lord Denning and the family story. Uh, I can see Harvey Proctor's book, um, Credible and True. I can see Denny's uh, Fergus, um, the mother of, um, of James Bulger, 
uh, her book, uh, I Let Him Go. Um, I can see various, um, various memoirs of different uh, high court judges, um, friends of mine. Um, and uh, let, me just, let me just go over and, and, and give a plug to two particularly good friends. Hold on. <laughs> Here's two. Uh, a Life of Crime, high, memoirs of a high court judge, Harry Ognall, uh, an opponent of mine at the bar, friend of mine on, on, on the bench, uh, and he, but that he, bit does sound like it is in how we see in movies where friends are on opposing teams and actually... yeah, absolutely, Ab <laughs> absolutely. And then Bill Bill Clegg, um, very distinguished Queen's Counselor, who's close to retirement, I think. William Clegg, you see, under under the wig, uh, and yeah, there it is on the picture. But um, th that um, I started off writing a memoir. Um, my, my having discussed it uh, with, with my publishers, some of the legal anecdotes, possibly frivolous. Th these cases were, were really too serious to, for, for a lot of the banter that goes on at the bar, um, for, for some of the anecdotes that were in there. Whether they may follow in, in a memoir, I don't know. <laughs> but um, th this was really t too serious for, for a lot of the jokes. and. Mm. Um, that, that that's how it finished off, not as a memoir, but as a serious yeah. book. And as a compendium of cases that I think shaped much of the 20th and 21st century as well, and are really important to have first-hand evidence of those cases from somebody like you who was an integral part of them. I think it's a really important book, and I'm just delighted that we've been able to steal an hour or so from you so that we can discuss it. Yeah, I also don't ever want to know how much it would cost us if we were hiring you for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Those days are gone. Those days are gone. <laughs> I just wish we were together in the Wigan Pen Club as it, as it used to be. It would, have been, it would have been a delightful evening. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you both very much. <laughs>very stark and mm. very strong and also very telling. This is a man who loves the bar, who loves his job and who's very proud to have been a High Court judge. And to hear him speak in those stark terms about how the system is failing at the moment. And also, we should point out, by the way, there was a huge backlog of cases before COVID-19. Yeah, so absolutely. it's not all COVID-19 no, related. This was a problem long before the pandemic. Yeah. So that was really interesting. And just to echo what you said really as well about some of the chapters in here. I mean, some of them are borderline hilarious. There's one case we didn't touch on with him of two guys who were dealing massive amounts of drugs. Do you remember mm, that case? Yeah. And they agreed to turn Queen's evidence to get their sentence lowered. But all the evidence they turn is all fabricated yeah, by them. Yeah. yeah. I thought, I mean, if you wrote that in a, in a thriller, you wouldn't yeah. get away with it, would you? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't at all. Yeah. I mean, and again, you know, we sort of touched on this as well, but it's it's just really interesting 
getting sort of in sync with his the way his brain works, which obviously yeah. comes out in his writing style. And he uses a lot of phrases about how he how the witnesses are viewed and that this was a very um, stylish witness or this was a very uh, compelling witness or he's, he's it's, it's, it's sort of quite strange for somebody who's obviously not part of the legal profession. Um, but just such a, a brilliant insight that, yeah, I, I genuinely wasn't expecting. I really enjoyed it. The thing I love most about doing this podcast with you is that um, we will have discussed some brilliant stories mm. and some really clever stories in the no. course of this season one. But in terms of a first-hand account of some primary evidence of 20th and 21st century Britain, there's no finer book, I think, than From Crime to Crime for that. And the unique insight that Richard Enriquez gives us that even as journalists we haven't had, have we? You know, I mean, and you're privy to quite a lot yeah. of journalists. Yeah, exactly, because there are there are quite a few of the cases where he details some evidence that wasn't admitted as part of a trial. Uh, and, you know, there's some of that in the James Bulger case, for example, that I remember reading about in the press, but you're never quite sure what was factually true and what wasn't. And, yeah, this is where it's it's laid out. So From Crime to Crime is the book, Richard Enriquez. He is a sir, but I think he's... Um... He's gallant enough to let us not have to... You know, some people insist on it, and he was very much not of that yeah, school. Yeah, I was, I was taking the tone at the start, and I think he was OK with yeah. us not calling him sir. To be honest, I think if we weren't in lockdown, we'd be on the first tee with him tomorrow morning, wouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not a good golfer. I like a mini-golf. <laughs> a crazy golf, you mean? With the windmills yeah. and all the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, come on. Natalie, Perfect that's about my level trip. as well, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> 